0: You know, it's interesting this time of the year, Christmas time, we see, you know, the nativity, we see the wise men, we see the shepherds, we see the baby in the manger. Um, you know, it's, it's easy to forget, we get caught up in the miracle of Christmas and him coming here as a human, um, what he was born for and uh, born to die for our sins and nailed our sins to that old rugged cross. Um, is what he was born to do. And so coming here in this season, um, amazing to see him as a baby. He came completely helpless, but his mission was to nail our sins to that old rugged cross. And so I love that song for that reason. All right, well, perhaps a man in modern times, no other man in modern times, um, was more at peace with himself and with those around him Then Mahatma Gandhi, okay, he was a picture of a tranquil soul who was at peace and harmony with everything around him. Fifteen years before he died, he wrote this, I must tell you in all humility that Hinduism as I know it entirely satisfies my soul. It fills my whole being and I find solace in the, I'm going to say this wrong, Bhagavad and the Upanishad that I don't get even in the Sermon on the Mount, But just before his death, he wrote this. My days are numbered. I'm not likely to live very long, perhaps a year, a little more. For the first time in 50 years, I find myself in the slew of despondency. So even the tranquil Gandhi, when he faced death, when he had to stare it in the face, his man-made religion couldn't give him the comfort, couldn't give the answers that he wanted. Everything seemed so peaceful, seemed like it was in harmony, until he had to stare death in the face. Then he became in the slew of despondency. Because death and decay, all of that destruction, has been an earmark of this world ever since the fall. And, you know, we mourn over the loss of loved ones, and we are saddened, we're grieved, and we see the effects of sin all over the world. But for the Christian, for us, for the ones that are following Jesus, death, death, Doesn't have to be something that we fear. We are told, what, 365 times in the Bible not to fear. Once for every day of the year. You can't miss one, except in a leap year. But that's okay. You still are covered. Do not fear, is what Jesus said. We don't have to fear death. Our flesh may be getting weaker, all right? Every single day, we may feel our flesh getting weaker. But our spirit man can grow stronger every single day. All we have to do is reach out and touch the Savior, and when we do, we will have more peace. We will have more confidence in eternity than what the world has. We will be in harmony with our Savior. We will be at peace. We don't have to be anxious with what lies beyond the other side of the grave. Revelations 21, 3-4 tells us what we have to look forward to. It says, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he shall dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be among them and he shall wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall no longer be any death. There shall no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. That is what's going to happen when our Savior walks the earth with us once again, once he makes all things new. So today we're going to take a look at the power and the compassion of Jesus. We're going to see two miracles that Jesus performed back to back, and the recipients of these miracles could not be farther apart on the social spectrum. Okay, you have a little girl, and then you have an older woman, both reaching out, both coming to Jesus, both staring death in the face. And the thing that saved them was faith and a touch from the Savior. There was a Canadian scientist, G.B. Hardy, who said, when I look at religion, I had two questions that I wanted to ask. The first was, was there anyone who conquered death? And the second one was, if they conquered death, did they make a way for me to conquer death too? He said, I looked at the tomb of Buddha and it was occupied. I looked at the tomb of Confucius, it too was occupied. I checked the tomb of Muhammad and it was occupied. But I came to the tomb of Jesus and it was empty there is one who conquered death so the second question did he make a way for me to conquer death as well and he says i opened the scriptures and i discovered jesus said because i live you also can live jesus not only came back to life but he made a way for us to follow him as well you may say nathan he may have provided a way but how do i know that that is for me well, I could tell you with full confidence that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he made a way, and he said, because you live, because I live, you can live also. And so if we put all of our faith, our trust in him, we'll be able to live as well. And what we're going to discover today is that because of that, because he made a way, he is accessible. He is touchable, right? He is impartial, and he is compassionate. Anyone can have eternal life. This is a big tent. Sometimes people accuse the church of being narrow minded. This is actually a huge tent, but it has a small door and you have to enter through the narrow gate. Okay. Matthew nine. We're going to do verses 18 through 26 today. While he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came to him and knelt before him saying, my daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him, touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, if I can only touch his garment, I will be made well. And Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, go away. For the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and he took her by the hand, and the girl rose. And the report of this went through all that district. I guess so. Now, there are two parallel passages to this, one in Mark and one in Luke, and they tell us that this ruler came to Jesus, and he was the highest-ranking religious person in that town by the name of Jairus. That was the man's name, and he was the ruler of the synagogue there in Jesus' hometown in Capernaum. He was a man of power and a man of influence. And given the, the mounting concern that the Pharisees had about this wandering rabbi, Him coming to Jesus, kneeling down and asking him for help was going to cause a lot of problems. That was going to cause a lot of judgment. People were going to look at him differently because he was doing this, but he didn't care. Okay, Peer pressure wasn't going to face him at all because he had a grief that he was working through. He was literally staring death in the face because his little girl was about to die. Now, it's not unusual for tragedy to drive people to Jesus. They run to him because they realize they have a need that only he can fill. Uh, Some people get angry with God. I spoke with one this week. Some people get mad at God because of a circumstance or a scenario that they have gone through because they think that they deserve something from him. And how arrogant we can be at times to think that the God of the universe owes us something. Right? And these people that get angry with God and think they deserve something from God don't see their eternal need. They only see kind of their temporary desires, their temporary wants. And so that's why the first step in witnessing to people isn't to prove that God exists, isn't to prove that Jesus exists or that God loves them. It is to prove their need for forgiveness, their need for salvation, because it only is going to be found in Jesus Christ. And what they'll find is that he is completely accessible. That's my first point this morning. Jesus is accessible. Jairus was in desperate need. Mark and Luke tell us that his daughter was at the point of death. And this is his last resort. His last resort after trying everything else is to run to Jesus and bow, him, bow down to him and ask him for help. And he found Jesus to be accessible. Now, remember, Jesus is surrounded by people. And so I don't know if it was because of his position, or I don't know if it was the passion in his voice or, you know, how frantic he may have been, but he gained instant access to Jesus. Matthew tells us that he knelt down in front of Jesus, a sign of respect, a sign of worship. Now, the Pharisees, as we've been talking about, were very proud people, okay? They saw themselves at the top of the ladder. And so submitting himself underneath Jesus was something that would have been very surprising. But if, you're in, if you've ever been through a tragedy, if you've ever been through a crisis, you know that all pride goes out the window, Okay, you don't care what other people think. You don't care what they're going to say about you. All you care about is that crisis that's in front of you. All self-consciousness is gone because you're wrestling with something that's very serious. You're looking for a solution. You're looking for relief. Now, it's interesting because Jairus wasn't coming to Jesus for relationship. Okay, he wasn't coming to get him him better. He wasn't coming to buddy up next to Jesus. He was coming to Jesus because he needed help. He was, he wanted help personally, but it was his faith that drove him there to seek help from Jesus. And it doesn't matter what drives people to Jesus. Okay. But when they get there, Jesus is looking for people that are, um, that are humble, that are confessing their sin, that have repented and admit their need for his forgiveness, for his righteousness. And when they do that, they put all of their faith, all of their trust in Jesus, they will find relief in belief. That's what I've called this message today, that we can find relief in belief. And this ruler of the synagogue is pleading with him when some messengers show up. Now, in Luke's gospel, we read this. This is Luke 8, 49. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear only believe and she will be made well. I don't know about you, but one of Satan's attacks when we place ourselves at his feet is to start whispering in our ear. He can't do anything in this situation. It's hopeless. Why would he help you? You think he really cares about your situation? And those are the words that the Satan whispers in our ear in these moments. But we need to listen to the voice of Jesus who says never fear. Don't fear. Only believe. Well, Nathan, I have a hard time doing that because what if things don't work out the way that I want them to? We're actually going through a book in our small group right now called Trusting God. That is the name of the book. And it is a very simple title, but it is something that is very difficult to do. And he leads off the book by asking, why is it more difficult for me to trust than to obey? Like it's way easier for me to obey God than it is to trust God. And that hit me pretty hard personally because I feel that way sometimes. Uh, There's an old hymn that's called Trust and Obey. Trust and obey because there's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. You have to do both. We can't just obey and have a hard time trusting him. We can't trust without obeying. It takes both of them. But a lot of times it's easier just to obey. Give us a list of rules. Give me a list of things that I can, you know, check off So I can see progress, so I can see what I'm doing, and we tend to stray into a works-related salvation. Trusting God with our day-to-day is a very difficult thing to do because we have the questions looming in the back of our head. The first one, is God all-powerful? Can he handle this situation? And the second one is, is he all-good? Is God all-powerful and is he all-good? Those are questions that people in the world have, and it actually sneaks into our minds too because Satan is whispering those things into our ears. Now the world's answer to those questions is God can either be all powerful Or he can be all good He can't be both And we say if he is all good Then he can't be all powerful Because look at all the evil that's happening in the world Look at all the things that are going wrong And he wants to stop it. he wants to intervene But he's powerless to do it So I believe in a God that is all good And he can't be all powerful Because if he was he would stop all of this stuff from happening (laughs) Or on the flip side of that, they would say, you know, I believe that God is all powerful, but he can't be all good. Because he can do all things, but he chooses not to, because look at everything that's going on in the world. So he can be all powerful, and if he is, he's not all good, because all of this evil, he would stop it, and he's not. And a lot of times, people that take that view end up just completely walking away. They can't believe in a God like that. I can't believe in a God that could do anything he wants to and doesn't stop any of this. But as Jesus followers, as as Bible-believing followers of Jesus, we know that both of those things can be true at the same time, that God is all-powerful and he is all-loving. Because we say that God is sovereign. God is sovereign. And sovereignty of God means that God is in control over every aspect of nature and every aspect of men's lives. He's not just an interested spectator. He's not somebody who just intervenes into history at specific times and then pulls back and then we're just victims of unhappy circumstance, right? He's not standing back watching and saying, well, I better, I better intervene here, but then not in other places. This book that we're reading says he has absolute rule over all creation for his own glory and for the good of his people. And because of that, because we believe that God is sovereign, we really need to take words like Luck and coincidence and fate and randomness, all of that stuff we need to take out of our vocabulary because if we believe that God is sovereign, then we believe that he is in control of all things and he has a purpose in all things, even if it doesn't make any sense to us. Now, in the next chapter in Matthew 10, Jesus is talking to his disciples and he says, not even a sparrow can fall from the sky without him noticing. And he says, you know, you can buy two sparrows for a penny, You know, sparrows are basically worthless, and if God knows when a sparrow falls from the sky, he knows your situation, okay? He knows all about it, and he cares infinitely more about you, You are infinitely more valuable to him than a sparrow, so he cares, he knows about your situation, and he chooses to work it out for his glory and for our good. Now, I could read all kinds of scripture to back that up, but I'm just going to read one, the one that we probably are the most familiar with, Romans 8.28, And it says, and we know, right? That's how it starts off. And we know, we are confident of, we are sure that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So if you love God, And if you're called according to his purpose in Christ Jesus, he is working everything for your good. And you can wrestle with that verse all you want, because that's what I've done. I have torn that verse apart. I said, I want to look at that verse in the Greek, I want to look at it in the Hebrew, I want to look at these words and what they mean, because maybe it means something different than what it says in black and white. But it doesn't. It means exactly what it says. All things, all in the Greek means all. All things work together for our good, even when we don't understand it. And I would, I would recommend that we take that on faith. Because if we wrestle with that question long enough and hard enough, like Jacob did when he wrestled with God, we might end up with a limp. Okay, Jacob ended up with a limp because he wrestled with God all night long. And if we continue to wrestle with that question and not put our faith and trust in God, we might end up with a spiritual limp. Instead of trusting him more. Now, tragedies will drive us to him, but our response needs to be just like this father's response, where when we get to Jesus, we place ourselves at his feet and just with the faith that all things are under his control. Because when we do that, we are saying that God, you are completely capable of intervening in this situation in my life. I know that you are capable. That's what this guy was saying. Jesus, at this point, had performed all kinds of miracles. He had made the lame walk. He had opened up the eyes of the blind. He had cast out demons and healed lepers, but he had never raised someone from the dead at this point. But this father believed that Jesus was capable of that. And our faith needs to believe that Jesus is capable of doing anything he wants. But even if he doesn't, we're still going to remain steadfast because we believe that there's a purpose in it. And it's for his glory and for our good. In verse 20, it says, Behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, If I can only touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned and seeing her said, Take heart, my daughter. Your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. Okay, he is accessible. Second point is Jesus is touchable. Now, I don't like being interrupted. When I am doing something, when I'm focusing on a task... I don't like being interrupted. I am laser focused on that thing. Now, when I get interrupted, when I'm trying to work on something, sometimes, sometimes I get irritated. (laughs) Only sometimes. Because I get laser focused. That's my priority. That's the thing I want to do. But Jesus saw interruptions as opportunities. And there's a lesson in that, that interruptions can be opportunities. That thing that we're so laser focused on isn't the main priority. It may not be. God may be saying in that interruption, I'm trying to reprioritize your schedule, okay? And Jesus saw interruptions as priorities. The priority didn't seem like it should be this woman. It seemed like it should be this little girl. In Mark and Luke's Gospels, it tells us that when she touched him, Jesus asked the question, who touched me? He said, wait a minute. And he stopped. He said, who touched me? Now, this is, pretty, this is pretty funny because Peter, at this point, turns to Jesus and he's like, are you kidding me? Like, look at all the people that are around us. We're, we can't even barely walk down the street. There's so many people. And you're asking who touched you? But Jesus perceived that power had gone out from him. So he said, who touched me? And this little girl, this little girl who had lived for 12 years, the joy of her father, the, the joy of her family, You have her, but now we have this woman, this older woman who had been suffering for 12 years. This little girl had been living the picture of youth for 12 years. Now we have this woman who has been suffering for 12 years with a condition that made her continually unclean. Now we talked about this with the lepers, that they were continually unclean until they were healed, which nobody had been healed of leprosy until Jesus came along and touched them. And not to be graphic, okay, but when women were menstruating, when it was that time of the month, they were unclean. They had to be secluded from everyone else, and they could not be touched. If they touched you, if you touched them, you were now unclean. You had to go through this big ritual ceremony to become cleansed again. So here's somebody who had been ostracized from society, from community, who hadn't been touched for 12 years. Now here's something that's a little bit amusing to me. Matthew doesn't even touch on it. He doesn't talk about doctors or anything like that. But when you get to the gospel of Mark, Mark just outs the doctors completely. He's like, he says this, she had endured much at the hands of physicians and she had spent all that she had and was not helped at all, but rather had gone worse. So Mark just completely exposes. it. He kind of attacks the doctors. And then in Luke, Luke's a physician, okay? The good physician is what he's called. So he wants to kind of protect the good name of the doctor. So he writes that nobody could heal this woman, okay? Physically, it was impossible for her to be healed. She had to be healed supernaturally. Doctors couldn't do anything about it. So that's kind of amusing. But she too was at the point of desperation, having spent all of her money on medicine. Now, this is interesting because the Jewish Talmud actually gave 11 different ways for her to be fixed, for her condition. And most of them were superstitious, okay? Most of these were things that no doubt she tried, but had gotten ripped off. One of them was, one of the remedies was supposed to be that you could carry the ashes of an ostrich egg in a linen bag during the summertime. But if it was the wintertime, you had to carry them in a cotton bag. And another involved carrying around a barley corn kernel that had been found in the dug of a white female donkey. Now that would be hard to find. A barley kernel, In the dung of a white female donkey? So all of these things are ridiculous, right? And she had gotten ripped off by all these doctors who said, if you do these things, you could be healed. But she had been made worse. And can I encourage you guys not to get ripped off spiritually? Don't get ripped off spiritually. And what I mean by that is that it's not about rituals, okay? It's not about formulas, there are no special words that you can pray. That's not, there's no special things that you can do. It is simply reaching out for a touch from the Savior. So what was she reaching for? This is like my favorite part. Okay, what was she reaching for? Why does it tell us that she reached for the fringe of his garment? In Numbers fifteen thirty-eight, God gives this command to Moses. Speak unto the children of Israel and bid them that they make fringes in the borders of their garments throughout their generations, and that they put upon the fringe of their borders a ribbon of blue, or a cord of blue. And it shall be unto you for a fringe, that you may look upon it, and remember all the commandments of the Lord, and do them. So on all their garments, and on their prayer shawls, they would make fringes. And on the corners, they would have these cords of blue. And when they looked at those, it was a reminder of all the things that God had asked them to do. Now this command is repeated in Deuteronomy, and it sounds really strange to us why he would ask them to do that. The Hebrew language is what we would call a uh, word-poor language. Okay, what I mean by that is that they, have, they don't have very many words. And so one word can mean like four different things, which makes translation a little bit difficult at times. And we have tons of words. Most other languages have so many words to describe things, uh, but the Jewish language doesn't have that. And so the word for borders or corners of the garment was a word kanaf, okay? That was the word. And it could mean several different things. It could mean borders. It could mean the extremities. It also meant wings, the wings of the garment. Well, who cares? Why is that a big deal? It's a big deal because in a little Old Testament book called Malachi, there is a prophetic verse in chapter four, speaking of the Messiah, and it says, but for you who fear my name, the Son of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. Now, I always thought that verse was strange. Why would there be healing in birds' wings? Right? That's how I used to read it. What they're saying Is it in these wings of the garment, in the fringes, in the borders of the garment, there was going to be healing. So no doubt in her mind, she's thinking of this verse from Malachi when she says, if I could only reach out and touch the wings of his garment, I can be made well. Isn't that amazing? I love that. These little tassels of blue. Um, Remember when David was in the cave? Him and his men were in the cave and they were hiding out. And Saul is chasing him. He's trying to kill David. And they're all hiding in the back of the cave and and Saul comes walking in. It says that he went in to rest or relieve himself or whatever. He takes a nap inside the cave because it's hot out. And so all of David's men say, this is your chance, David. This is your chance. Go up and you can kill Saul and you can become king. That's what God said. Why not go ahead and take care of it right now? And David said, you know, God forbid that I touch the Lord's anointed. He may be crazy, he may be out of his mind and trying to kill me, but he's still the Lord's anointed. And he sneaks up and it says that it cut off, he cut off the corner of his garment. So what was he cutting off? He was cutting off the fringe, the cord of his garment. And when Saul goes back outside, David comes out of the out of the cave and he holds up that cord, that corner, because he's like, you are not in line with God's will. You are not following his command, Saul. This is supposed to be your authority. It's going to be taken from you. It's going to be torn from you. So that word from the edges touched the hem of his garment. She was looking for the healing in his wings. And she went through the, her faith took her through the crowd to the feet of Jesus. Now, many people have come in close contact with Jesus, but remained untouched by him. They've come in close contact, but they haven't been touched by him. They weren't changed because they did not take hold of him. They didn't take hold of him and Jesus knows the difference between people who are insincere who just have a sense of religious curiosity and those who are genuinely his. Those who that those who desperately are seeking a touch from the Savior that have genuine faith. So here we see the impartiality of Jesus. We see that he was accessible. He was touchable. He was also impartial. Here you had this very prominent, very important ruler of the synagogue who comes to Jesus and he bows down publicly in front of everybody. And then you have this unknown woman, this woman who wasn't even supposed to be there because she was unclean. And she comes in secret. She bends down and touches the fringe of his garment. Now her uncleanness should have kept her away, should have kept her away from the crowds, away from Jesus. And sometimes people resist coming to Jesus because they feel like their sinfulness, that they've done too much, that they're too far gone to receive a touch of forgiveness from Jesus. And when you touched an unclean person, that made you unclean. But in every situation where Jesus touched somebody who was unclean, they never affected him. It was always his purity, his holiness that got transferred over to them. And people, they think that I will come to church, I will come to God once I get my act cleaned up. But that's like saying, I'm going to wait until I'm well before I go to the doctor. You don't wait until you're well to go to the doctor. You go to the doctor when you're sick. When we're spiritually sick, when we are spiritually gone, that's when we come to Jesus and his holiness, his forgiveness, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Jesus tells her, take heart, daughter, because your faith has made you well. Now that phrase, made you well, in other portions of the Bible, it is translated, saved you. Your faith has made you well, or your faith has saved you. What does our faith do? Our faith saves us, right? And he said these words to the blind Bartimaeus, blind Bartimaeus, who's sitting on the edge of the road, and Jesus comes walking by with his disciples, and there's a huge commotion, and he starts screaming at the top of his lungs, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And the people are like, shut up. And he starts yelling all the louder, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stops in his tracks. It was the son of David that caught his attention, and he calls him. And they said, "Well, it's your day. He's calling for you." And he comes up and he says, "What does you want?" He said, "Lord, I want to see." And Jesus heals his eyes. And Jesus says, "Your faith has made you well, or your faith has saved you." Because what was his declaration? You are Jesus. You are the Messiah. You are the son of David. You're the one that we've been waiting for. I know that you have the capability, the ability to heal and change my situation. He was putting his faith in Jesus. So not only was he healed, but he was always, he was also saved. These are the same words that he used with the prostitute who was bawling at his feet, who was washing his feet with her tears and washing them and drying them with her hair. He said, your faith has saved you. Your faith has made you well remember when jesus healed the 10 lepers he healed, he healed 10 lepers and he said go show yourself to the priests only one of them returned to give him thanks to say thank you to jesus and jesus was like where is everybody else has only one person come back to give thanks and jesus said your faith has saved you 10 of them were healed but only one was saved because of his faith our faith saves us jesus was impartial it really is amazing that he accepts any of us, right, in our sinful state, in our rebellious state, all the times that we intentionally turn our backs on him. In my studies this week, I read this. I thought this was pretty powerful. Who could have predicted that God would choose not Esau, the honest and the reliable, but Jacob, the trickster and the heel, that he would put the finger on Noah, who hit the bottle, or on Moses, who was trying to beat the rap in Midian for killing a man in Egypt? And if it weren't for the honor of the thing, he'd have just as soon let Aaron go back and face the music. Or the prophets, who are a ragtag lot, mad hatters, most of them. How wonderful it is that God is more gracious than men. Amen? How wonderful it is that he's more gracious than we are. And when Jesus came to the ruler's, oh, I'm gonna to have to go quick. When Jesus came to the ruler's house, he saw the flute players in the crowd making a commotion. Now, when we grieve today, we tend to keep it all inside. We tend to keep it hidden. Whether we say it or not, it's really frowned upon to let your grief spill out onto other people and make them feel uncomfortable. Okay? Um, I, back then, they let it all out. All of their grieving was in ways that were outside where people could see it. Um, I wish we could bring back the black armbands. You remember back in the day when somebody was grieving, they wore a black armband. And that let people know that you were mourning, that you were grieving someone. And I wish we could bring that back. Because when you're wearing that, people wouldn't come up and say stupid things to you. You're grieving the loss of someone very close to you, and they come up, they're like, man, isn't this a beautiful day? Isn't this awesome? And you want to just punch them. Because for you, your life is upside down. So one of the things they would do is actually turn all their furniture upside down to signify that their life had been turned upside down. They would also tear their clothes. They actually had about 30 different ways that you could tear your garments. And if you were the mother or the father or the sibling, what you would do is you would tear your robe right over your heart to signify that your heart was being ripped in two. And if you were like an uncle or an aunt, you were somebody else that was a distant relative, you would like rip it off to the side or you would rip it at the bottom or something like that. So they had all these different ways to express externally that they were mourning. And lastly, they would hire musicians and professional mourners. They would hire these people to show up at the house, turn on the tears, yell at the top of their lungs, play sad music so that everybody knew something wrong was going on there. And if you had the means, the more people you would hire to do this. They were paid to do this. Now, remember King Herod? Herod, the one that, you know, had all the babies killed in Bethlehem because he was trying to wipe out the prophecy that was, that Jesus was going to be born in Bethlehem. People hated him so much. He knew that when he died, no one would mourn his death. He wouldn't be able to pay people to mourn his death. So what he did is he told them, he said, I want you to go round up all the prominent people, all of the, you know, well-to-do people in Israel, bring them here, put them in the jail. And when I die, I want you to slaughter all those people because nobody's going to mourn my death when I die, but there will be mourning in Jerusalem when I die. So I want you to kill them all when I die. That was an order they didn't carry out. Thank goodness. But that's what he wanted to do because they paid people to do this. He he wouldn't be able to even pay people to mourn him. And Jesus arrives at the house, and all these mourners are there earning their money, making a scene, and Jesus says, go away. (laughs) Go away. The girl is not dead but sleeping, and they laughed at him. Now, I used to read this and be really confused because how can they be mourning at one moment and then be laughing at him the next. Well, this is the reason, because they weren't genuine. They were hired. They were hired to do this. They weren't authentic. And so he says, She's sleeping. Paul uses this phrase in 1 Corinthians when he writes, We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in the twinkling of an eye when the Savior comes back. And so Jesus says the same thing about Lazarus. When the news comes to Jesus that Lazarus has died, he's like, Let's go wake up our friend Lazarus. And the disciples are like, uh, Jesus, I think he's sleeping. That's what they said. That's what, if he's sleeping, then he'll wake up. And Jesus is like, he's dead. I have to think it sometimes Jesus was like, oh. okay, let me explain it to you again. He's dead. We're going to go wake him up. Now, I've said this before. This should be an enormous comfort to us. This is meant to be a comfort to you and I. That for us, for the believers, this life is as bad as it gets. Okay? This is as bad as it gets. Heaven, eternity is waiting for us. We don't have to fear death because when we take our last breath here, we take our first breath with the Lord in eternity. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. All the saints that have gone before us are sleeping right now, that's what he says, but they will be fully awake when we get our resurrected bodies and we're standing in his presence. There's a beautiful line from a poem that I read this week and it goes like, No longer must we be mourners weeping, nor call departed children dead. For death is transformed into sleep, and every grave becomes a bed. For the believer, every grave is just a bed. That's all it is. Okay, wrapping up. Last point, the compassion of Jesus. Jesus, once again, breaks with longstanding traditions when he tells the people, get out of here. All of this commotion, everything that you're doing, you need to get out of here right now because she's just sleeping. And when the crowd had been put outside, he went in, took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went through all the district. Now, I want you to hear this, okay? He put the unbelievers outside. He moved out the mockers. That was the first thing he did, was put those out. Now, there will always be people around us who are unbelievers, even those who may mock our faith. People that we might call toxic. We need to move them out. Okay, you and I have been called to be in the world, but not of the world. If there are any unbelievers that are trying to assault your faith, that are trying to mock you, they need to be moved out. Mark and Luke tell us that when Jesus went in, he took Peter and John with him. So he moved out the unbelievers and he brought his close friends with him. He brought Peter and John in. Spend time with people that build you up in the faith, that strengthen you spiritually, not those that are assaulting you and trying to tear you down. Move out the mockers and bring in the brothers and sisters of faith. Now, it also tells us that Jesus raised her from the dead and that she was hungry. I think that's an interesting detail that they would add, that this little girl was hungry. Jesus performed three resurrections during his ministry. This is the first one. He raised this little girl. She was hungry. The second one was at a funeral procession outside of a city called Nain. And it tells us in Luke 7, And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her. And he said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and he touched the buyer and the bearer stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and he began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. And the third, of course, was Lazarus, his buddy Lazarus. He showed up and he called his friend to come out. And Lazarus came walking out of the tomb. Now, three things we can take from these resurrection stories. He raised this little girl and she was hungry. He raised the man and he started to speak. He raised Lazarus. And he walked. Now, you and I were dead in our sins. We used to be dead in our sins. Now we're dead to sin, but we used to be dead in our sins. And when Jesus brings spiritual resurrection to your life and to my life, we first hunger for different things. Okay, we never try to, we shouldn't try to satisfy ourselves with the things of this world. We are now hungry for the things of God. Colossians 3.1 says that if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things below. So not only do we hunger for different things, but we also talk differently differently. In 1 Peter 3.10, it tells us, whoever desires to love life and seek good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. So if you want to enjoy the new life, the overcoming life that Jesus has given you, we need to watch the words that come out of our lips. Proverbs 18.21 says that death and life are in the power of the tongue and those who love it will eat its fruit. So we hunger for different things. We also talk differently. And then lastly, we walk differently. We've been talking about uh, this a lot as we went through the Sermon on the Mount. We've been talking about how we no longer belong to the world. We're part of a new kingdom, a different kingdom. We're called to be salt and light in the world. We're called to be generous with what we've given because our treasure is not here. It's in heaven. And we don't have to be anxious because he's caring for us. We can overcome our anger. We can overcome our lust. We can pray for those who persecute us. I touched on this last week. We talked about baptism. We have been buried with him in baptism, raised to walk in newness of life. So we act differently. We are to be different than the world. So we hunger for different things. We talk differently. We also live differently. And we know from this story that Jesus is accessible, he's touchable. Thank goodness he is impartial, and he is compassionate. And when difficulties arise or when tragedy strikes in our lives, we find relief in the belief that he is in control of all things. He is sovereign over all of nature. He is sovereign over all of our lives, the good and the bad, and that it is for our good and for his glory, right? It's for our good and his glory. All right. I don't know if we should sing one more song or not. It's 11 o'clock. I think we'll probably just wrap up and set everything up. But... Um, You know, this message is, it's a powerful message, but sometimes it can be difficult to talk about the sovereignty of God. Easy to say that he is all love, right? But talking about how he is all powerful and looking at our lives, looking at the world today and saying, God, why are you letting all this go on? But as we've heard, things are not falling apart, things are falling into place, Right? they're not fa- Just remember that. When you see things in the news and how the world's going crazy, it's not falling apart. For the Christian, it's falling into place. It's an exciting time to be alive. It really is to see these things falling into place because he's coming soon. Amen? Amen. All right, I'll pray, and then we will go ahead and get things set up. Heavenly Father, thank you that you are a God worth worshiping, that you are all-powerful, that you are all-good. You are both of those things at the same time. And you are working in our lives. Everything that happens here is to prepare us for eternity. And so, God, we submit to your will. We say, God, do whatever you want in our lives. Because we want to be more like you. And we want to be prepared for eternity. God, may we hunger for different things. Change our appetites change the way that we talk, change the way that we are around other people. May we live lives that look like light in the midst of darkness. The darker it gets, the brighter the lights will shine. And so as your people, Lord, fill us up to overflowing. May we spill out onto others. May we show your love, but may we also speak your truth. And not just try to convince people that you are love, but you are also a just God. God, that we need forgiveness, we need salvation, or we're going to spend eternity apart from you in hell. So God, may we live out that truth. Give us boldness to walk around in the mission field of our workplace, of our neighborhoods, of our families, that we would live it out and live changed lives for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.